Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so today's episode is brought to you by Zencaster. And I remember back in the day where I was looking at putting together Zencaster, I was looking for a solution that would really help me in putting things together. And essentially, this is what allowed me to bring deal makers to life. I mean, basically, Zencaster, what it is, is an all-in-one solution where you just send the link to the person that you're looking to interview. Essentially, they would plug in their computer with their video, with the audio, and then basically you are good to go. You would just piece everything together, give it to your audio engineer, or even edit it yourself, and you are off to the races. Now, if you're looking at getting into podcasting, you should definitely check Zencaster out. And you could also get a 30% discount. And this is a discount code that you will be able to redeem by going into Zen, and that is csnzebraen.ai forward slash dealmakers and then number zero. And lastly, you know, I was very much blown away when I found out that investing in wine has been one of the best kept secrets amongst the ultra wealthy. And this is now not the case anymore. You know, I came across this solution, which is called VinoVest, and they are a great, great solution that allows you to diversify investing by implementing or including wines into your portfolio. I mean, take a look at this. Wine has one third of the volatility of the stock market, and yet it has outperformed the global equities market over the past 30 years with 10.6% annualized revenues. So it's a really good way to diversify your portfolio. And you could also get two months of free investing by just going into the Send and that is csnzebraen.ai forward slash dealmakers. And by just going there, you will be able to redeem your discount. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So very excited about our guest today. We're going to be learning quite a bit about product market fit, building, scaling, financing, stress testing with massive partnerships. I think that you're all going to find this episode super exciting. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Angus McDonald. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. Thanks for having me. Thanks for your listeners for listening. So originally born there in a 20,000-acre farm in Australia. I mean, how, how was life growing up, especially being 40 miles from, from civilization? <laughs> Thanks, Alejandro. Look, it, uh, it's a very unique kind of environment to grow up. You know, lots of space, lots of time with your own thoughts, you could say, growing up on a 20,000-acre farm in the, in the kind of middle of nowhere in Australia. So, yeah, that was my background. And, you know, I grew up in a, on a family kind of farm in a family business, which was, which was interesting in itself. Now, at 12, you went to boarding school, and I'm sure that that experience too, that it gave you kind of like the, the sense of being independent to a certain degree, being on your own and, and the uncertainty. So, so how was that for you? Yeah, I think um, independence is something that I've always, has always been a, a value that, I've, that I've, I've had. And I think what comes out of that is a sense of transparency. 
um, wanting to be able to build relationships with people broadly. There's a certain self-confidence that you get from being uh, independent or relatively independent from a younger age. And, you know, I think growing up on a, on a farm, which is very isolated, your, your natural inclination then becomes uh, to be more independent and to not necessarily be part of the pack, so to speak, um, uh, from, a, from a young age. Now, for you, at what point do you say that you got this global outlook? I remember watching, watching Australians, you know, uh, go and play global sporting events. Um, you know, as a as a ten year old boy, I was mad keen on tennis, and uh, there was a Australian tennis player who won Wimbledon in nineteen eighty seven. For those listeners. You probably don't remember Pat Cash. He was my absolute hero as a kid growing up. And, you know, I think being able to see people come from all over the world and be able to, you know, be the best or challenge the best on the global scale was something that, that I was always really, really motivated by. After I left school, I, I, I traveled to the UK and I, you know, I had a, a gap year, we call it, in between um, school and starting university. And, I worked over in the UK and did some backpacking around Europe and tried to experience different cultures, not just that, not just the Anglo cultures, I guess, but also more broadly European cultures. And that was a great experience for me and, and certainly meant that when I came back to start studying, I think as a 19-year-old, I was, I was more interested in, in global business, global people, global cultures, and certainly that then. I think, shape the kind of roles and jobs that I wanted to do in the future. And mathematics. Why mathematics? I mean, you probably, as you were saying, you grew up in this family business, all about farming. And I mean, math, 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 you know, it sounds a little bit far away from that. So how did you come across that love for math and, and technology and, and, and computer science? Look, I, I think I was always had that inclination in maths and science, but Maths for me, I I used to just walk around as a kid trying to do numbers and sums in my head. You know, we had a lot of cattle and sheep uh, on our farm, and I remember having helping my grandfather, who was still alive and working on the farm. I remember helping him count the sheep, and we had twenty six thousand sheep. So that was a lot of counting, and um, you know, numbers were always part of our life, and I always loved how they operated and so maths for me was just it was my interest it was my passion um it was something i i i really liked uh thinking about how they work i didn't think particularly deeply but i i would say less theoretical and more about how you apply maths into uh into business senses um into the into the environment into how maths kind of operates in uh in in everything that we do so for you after you got the degree, you went into into a very interesting path, which is pretty much software companies and internet companies. So was there like a, a particular trigger that really pushed you into that direction? Yeah, look up, man. I mean, I think you're talking about someone who was, you know, graduating effectively in the late 90s, 2000. Uh, it was the tech first tech boom. These businesses that were starting, you know, from in that period were incredibly exciting. The growth was incredible. There, it was a real sense of opportunity. I think that, you know, this was going to be the next big uh, 
opportunity for everyone. So, so I, I wanted to be part of that and I was excited to um, try and build the next websites and things like that. That's, I, I thought that was going to be pretty interesting. And so, yeah, that's, that's why I went into it. So what did you learn from being at companies like Yahoo? I mean, obviously companies that are uh, globally recognized um, and, um, you know, I'm sure that you got like a good understanding of maybe like what, what entails to, to build such a massive company, perhaps in, in, in a short period of time. Yeah, I think what I, what I found about Yahoo was their incredible global outlook. You know, like you're talking about a business that, you know, ended up, I guess, not being as successful as they would have wanted to, but certainly in the early 2000s was an absolute pioneer and powerhouse of the internet's landscape. And, you know, invested in Alibaba when it was really early, you know, had amazing kind of pushes into Asia and other parts of the globe. And so for me, that was that kind of sat well with the values that I was already kind of drawing on, you know, around having a global outlook and, and wanting wanting to work in global business and wanting to work in, uh Across the, across, truly across the world, across all, all cultures and things like that. So I got a lot of that out of Yahoo. I remember going to, you know, partnership events, partnership team events in Sunnyvale in, in California. And there were literally people there from Hong Kong, from Germany, from UK, you know, Singapore, like all over the place, Japan. And yeah, I found that really exciting. Now, in your case, you met your partner. And uh, you guys had those ideas going on. So first you had the um, the different, you know, buying and selling domains. Then you had the adventure uh, trips in the APAC region. Now, at the same time, you had the, um, the, the, the full-time gigs. I mean, your full-time jobs that you were executing while, while you guys were kind of like doing this as well uh, as a site, you know, type of thing. What do you think that that triggered, you know, for you to say, you know what, I'm going to go at it full time, which is what essentially ended up happening with Cover Genius? Yeah. So the trigger for me was um, I, I was probably a later, by that stage, I was later in life entrepreneur, I guess I was kind of mid thirties and, you know, I had a wife and child and, you know, things, things were pretty real. And so having it as a side hustle for the first year, few years, made sense for the different businesses that Chris and I had. You know, I think Chris and I met at university were, you know, best friends in our twenties. We played sport together. Our wives are very close. So a very um, you know, a, a very strong personal relationship. And so when we started doing things together, then it was it was a pretty sort of natural way that we kind of just did things around respecting each other, always um uh, making sure that we challenged each other, but we did it in a respectful way. So when I th when I think about what made us kind of jump into doing it permanently, it really was the the fact that we could see this massive opportunity. You know, the businesses that we'd had were in areas where there were giants. Um, online travel is an example. You know, we knew, you know, Expedia and Booking dot com and these kind of businesses were getting larger and larger. The smaller kind of regional players were getting taken out by them as well. So when we saw the really big opportunity in insurance that we did with Cover Genius, it was really then that we made the decision, hey, we've got to go hard at this 
we've got to invest all our time and efforts. We've got to obsess about it and make it a great business. So then, what was the um, what were the early days like of the company? Oh, well, they were pretty stressful, as you can imagine. I mean, we were bootstrapping it based on our, you know, the effectively the the money we'd either made personally from from jobs or 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 that we'd made from earlier businesses. So, you know, that year, which was I think pretty much twenty from late twenty fourteen to mid twenty fifteen. Chris and I funded it, we bootstrapped it, but we had a great initial partner. And so, you know, I think that was the other thing that we saw that we had a very small part of, uh, uh, we just won a very small part of Booking.com's ground transportation business in like uh, one market. And so we felt that we were onto something and that was really exciting because we knew that the addressable market size we were targeting was huge. It's like a trillion dollars or something. So, you know, insurance tends to have these kind of huge target addressable markets. But even when we were talking about one partner, we knew that this overall size of that opportunity was, was, was massive. So getting a little bit of a little bit of a very large kind of opportunity was exciting for us in those early days. And so we just obsessed on delivering a great partnership for those guys, you know, and that was that was the early days was making sure we could always deliver on what we promised. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. For the people that are listening, what ended up being the business model of Cover Genius? How do you guys make money? So we're in a embedded insurance in tech. So it's kind of before InsureTech was a word, but we could. what we do is we sell insurance uh, at the point of sale or at in, so in a shopping cart, in a booking form, in a registration form, something like that. That's our business model. So we're absolutely laser focused on that. We don't do a lot of direct to consumer insurance sales. We're all about that embedded insurance offer. And so the the original spots that we operated in were in travel. So you know, Booking.com is a good example. When you were renting a car in Booking.com, 
you would be offered our insurance product um, when you when you went to hit book now. And so our whole go-to-market was partnerships. We had to work with these big digital platforms or, you know, to be able to encourage them to, to want to work with work with us and to see the opportunity for them to make some money out of those those sales, but also primarily for them to give a great customer experience to their end customers so that they're getting an insurance product that's absolutely fit for purpose for that transaction that they were doing. So, so there was one partnership that you guys closed, and that was with uh, Bookings.com, and uh, and definitely that uh, was exciting, but at the same time, very stressful. So, so why was it so stressful? Look, it was stressful because you know Booking.com is the largest OTA in the world. You know, tens of thousands of employees um, operate in the whole world, all countries, pretty much. If if you look on the map, they've probably got an office there. We were a small technology company based out of Sydney. We had to deliver the solution in the, in Europe, and it was for customers who were going to travel to the US. So it was a really kind of global kind kind of initial project that we had for them. Why it was stressful was, you know, when you do a partnership like that, it stresses your legal team, it stresses your finance team, it stresses your technology, it stresses your customer service, it stresses your customer success or your partnerships kind of function stresses everything in the business and um it stress tests it i would say and so we felt that we wanted to obsess on that and make our business able to deliver those solutions for those really large enterprise grade partners because we thought that was going to be our go-to-market we didn't want to have to do you know a whole lot of small kind of business we thought hey this, what we're going to do is really big enterprise clients and to do that, we need to build a business and an organization that's absolutely the best at it. And so we use that as an opportunity to kind of build that. But yeah, the first one was was stressful. Yeah, no kidding. Now, in this case for you guys, I mean, was there like a turning point? Was there like a moment where you said to yourself, we're going to make it? Yeah, I think once we've launched that first bit, I felt that we had something. You know, the thing, the great thing about our business is the unit economics are really kind of clear, and that was something that that I kind of always wanted. You know, Chris and I had always wanted in in our businesses was we really liked the idea of knowing when we we're making money. Like every sale, are you making money? And what we get from our business is because we know how much commission or you know marketing fee that we're paying our our distribution partners, we can fix that amount. We also then know what the uh, underwriting fee is going to be with our insurance carrier. So they give us a, a wholesale price effectively. And then because we manage the claims, we manage the customer service, we manage everything on their behalf, um, our margin in, in the middle is, is, pretty, is pretty much fixed. And so if we make a, if we sell something for a dollar, we know exactly what we're going to make. And I felt that as soon as we got to that sort of business model, then it was just about scaling and you're always going to have something. You know, even if, you know, something, you know, you decided that you didn't want to continue, we could wind our business back and it would just sit there churning, you know, making its margin. Um, so it was very much like a software kind of business, which you distribute out and Yes, you've got to provide your support, but you can run them 
on very low overheads and they can just um, be quite high margin high margin businesses so I think that's kind of what I what I liked about what we were building from the start having that business model it was very different to a lot of what other insurtechs or you know uh, digital insurers have tried to do because they have a lot of marketing costs that they have to try and fund you know they have to get their brand out and things like that and really we've kind of solved that if you like ours is fixed it's we know from our partnership how much we're going to pay for the effective marketing of the product and how much capital have you guys raised to date angus so we went through a seed round and a series a and series b and then we've recently closed our series c so our series c closed last year we raised 70 million us dollars as part of that previously the rounds were relatively small so we you know as a bootstrap business um We've always been quite conservative, I guess, with what we're raising. We've always wanted to have a pathway back to profitability. And when your unit economics are as strong as ours, then that's kind of easier to present and, and we've, we've kind of managed that. Our Series B, as an example, was $15 million, um, which is a relatively small amount, but we had a, we kind of didn't need any more. And we knew that if we were able to, spend that money to grow back and then grow back into being profitable again, that was the right kind of shape for us. So that's kind of how we've thought about capital raising. It, 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 it's probably different to others, but yeah. Now, in terms of, you know, cover genius for the people that are listening to really get an understanding of maybe like the scope and size, I mean, anything that you can share maybe in terms of like number of employees or anything else? Look, we're sort of 300 plus employees now around the world. We do a lot of our software engineering in, in Australia, but we've recently launched remote teams in, in the US and South America, and, and that's going pretty well. The US has been a big growth focus for us. We sort of we've tripled our team over there in the last sort of 12 months. So the business works with, you know, three of the leading five e-commerce companies in the world and, um, you know, does all sorts of other non-travel stuff now. So we do product warranties, we do renters insurance in 50 US states. We're doing all sorts of insurance products. And I think that's kind of been our, the change for us was to, you know, we started in our travel kind of area that we were talking about earlier, but the vision for Cover Genius is to be able to help the world's largest digital platforms to sell any insurance product to their global customers. And so we have global licenses in all the major markets to allow us to do that. We have a platform that's now stress tested with, you know, the likes of Amazon and eBay and Wayfair and e-commerce and booking.com and um, Skyscanner and others in travel, you know, Ryanair as an airline, as an example. So just loads of really great partners and I think what what I'm amazed with is that you know that it it works pretty much everywhere. You know, where as an example, we started working with Flipkart, who's the largest e-commerce provider in India, and you know it's the same kind of problem that we were trying to solve with Booking.com back in the early days. Is how do you sell insurance to that customer in, in, at the point of sale? And it's just amazing to see it in all the different places that we're that we're operating in now from South America to Korea to India. It's, it's pretty cool. 
So as you're thinking about growth and, and the future too, if, if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Cover Genius is fully realized, what does that world look like? What it looks like is, you know, under insurance has been a has been a pretty big problem for a lot of a lot of customers out there. And I think it's increasingly becoming a problem for younger uh, parts of society. What we solve with embedded insurance is making sure that people get the insurance that they need based on the transaction data that they're doing. So it's less about their personal data, their personal situation, you know, who you are, what your name is, you know, that sort of stuff, and more about what, what you're doing, what activity you're doing, or what service you're buying, or what product you're buying. So if you're buying a bicycle on, on Amazon, well, you should be get, being offered something that's relevant to that bicycle purchase you're making. And so what I see is that ha- that proliferating across all the fintech apps, banking apps, prop tech kind of platforms. I think there's lots of opportunity there. I think there's going to be opportunity in crypto platforms as well as they become more mainstream and offer different different assets. But anywhere where there, where there are transactions occurring, where you have rich data about that product or service that's that's happening, I want to be able to use that to be able to target the right insurance or protection product for the customer who's who's doing that. And I think the outcome of that is is people buying the right product, you know, not buying the wrong product and not having to read a ten page policy wording document which they don't really understand at the end, but them feeling confident that hey that product is fit for purpose it's kind of been recommended by a brand i trust which isn't an insurance company brand let's face it it's not one of our traditional insurance brands it's it's more likely the brand we use every day the booking.com the amazon the wayfair our our customers trust those brands more than they do the traditional insurers so um, we're all about empowering those guys to build a really great customer experience. And I think if I wake up in the future, I, I think we're going to see a lot more of that. Nice. Now, imagine if I put you into a time machine and I'm able to bring <laughs> you back in time. Back in time. Maybe to that moment where you and your partner were thinking about building something together. Imagine you had the opportunity of sitting down that younger Angus. And giving that younger Angus a piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Oh, look, I'm a, a massive believer that you've got to have persistence. You know, you've got, to, you've got to believe, you've got to work on your strategy, work on how you, you know, what your business is going to be about. Um, we were very clear, as an example, that we wanted to do embedded insurance. We wanted to help others sell insurance. You know, whenever we've kind of strayed from that, it hasn't worked for us. So I think be really focused on your strategy and what's going to, what, why, why you think your business is going to be successful. And so I, you know, that would be my recommendation to my young self, stay focused. And if you think it's right, then just persist. And by persisting, I don't mean just doing the same shit over and over again. Excuse my French, but I mean get try and get better at doing the same stuff. Um, you know, sometimes you're not going to win that partnership that you hope for in your first week, 
but go back to it six months later look at what you know what your pitch deck looked like look at what your demo is that you presented make it better and then go and try again like i like to say to our partnerships team and when someone says no they're not actually ever saying no to us they're just saying not now so how do you persist and how do you kind of keep making what your solution is better so that eventually they say yes and that's what i'd say to my young self keep, keep getting better I love it. So, Angus, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Well, you can reach me on LinkedIn, but you can also reach me at angus at covergenius.com. I'm not really on Twitter or anything else, so um, that's probably the best way to get me. <laughs> Amazing. Well, hey, Angus, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. What an honor. Thank you, Alejandro. Great to be here, and thanks for, thanks for the conversation. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.